There are only a couple weeks left in the Missouri General Assembly's legislative session, and one of the big items left unfinished is imposing term limits on statewide elected officials. That's a priority of State Representative Dean Plocker and Governor Eric Greitens. We talk with Plocker about that and other lingering issues in the legislature on another edition of Politically Speaking, so let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, a candid conversation with the Show Me State's biggest political newsmakers. I'm Jason Merzenbaum. And I'm Joe Manis. That's Eric Reitens, Navy <laughs> SEALs running for governor, and I'm really, really glad to be on with you, Jason and Joe. I'm going to push back on these regulators. I'm doing this for the people. I was encouraged along the way, not just by my family, but by a lot of teachers and professors and knew when I was in college that I would run for office someday. We're very excited about the prospect of having some more free market solutions. Even though after the conversation, I still might not agree. We want our listeners to get a real sense of what drives these people. They're actually people with a story to tell. And welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joe Manis is still on vacation, so I'm flying solo today. We have as our special guest coming on for the first time... Dean Plocker. You are the state representative for the 89th District. And before I ask you any hard-hitting questions on the issues or your history, tell the listeners what uh, the 89th District encompasses. Well, the 89th District is sort of in the central corridor, West County, uh, DePere, Town & Country, parts of Chesterfield, into Kirkwood, and it's some unincorporated, unincorporated areas. And do you li- which of those cities do you live in? Are you an unincorporated person? Or are you are you in a municipality? My family and I live in DePere. Oh, in DePere. Okay. It's important to know that because I want to make sure when I do R dash city that I'm putting the right city. And I wouldn't want to insult you by saying you live in unincorporated St. Louis County. Um, so you were elected in a special election in 2016. We'll get to that in a minute. Tell us a little bit about your your personal and professional background and what kind of got you into being interested in state politics in the first place. Well, I'm, you know, uh, I didn't necessarily envision myself as a state rep, but, you know, I, I'm blessed with a great family. I have uh, my wife, Rebecca, is a nurse, and we have two children, Owen and Stella, ages nine and eight. And I, I really... About 10 years ago uh, with kids, my wife and I started really you know, stepping back and seeing the direction the country was going in. Um, we're more small government, less intrusiveness with government into our lives. And that really kind of woke me up and my wife to what we could do maybe and look into that. And, and we did. And so uh, when, the, when the opportunity came along, um, I decided to run from my hat in the ring. Now, the, the opportunity came sooner than you probably expected because your seat was an originally held by now former House Speaker John Deal. He resigned in 2015 after a, a situation that we've talked about extensively dealing with inappropriate behavior toward interns. I got to ask, were you planning on running for this seat before he resigned or was this something you just decided to do after the controversy subsided with his resignation? No, it certainly was not spur of the moment. Um, yeah, I, I had uh, spoken a couple times with Speaker Deal, um, who was always very supportive and helpful. Uh, and really, really kind of sat me down and told me what the opportunity would be like if, if I would decide to do it. Um, I had a campaign committee already set up. It did happen a little earlier. But, uh, you know, it, it's been a great experience. And that, that benefit of the year that I served last year has been great uh, for me this year to, to sit back and, and be better prepared to participate and, and contribute. Now, um, because your seat is generally seen as a Republican-leaning seat, when the special election came around, it was really winning that Republican nomination in the committee process that I think was crucial. 
you actually ran against a couple of people in that committee process. One of them was former state representative and state treasurer nominee Cole McNary, as well as another person. I think you won pretty handily, though. I don't even think it was really that close. But I do know that people were talking about, especially in the wake of the circumstances after John Deal resigned, how was his successor going to turn the page and, and set a better example than, than he did? Um, and I, I know from reading uh, Joe Manis's article on that, that you really emphasized your family background and you mentioned that you really wanted to bring a different type of mentality to Jefferson City. Um, was, was that thought on your mind, especially considering the circumstances that you came into Jefferson City in the first place? Well, you know, I mean, I'm not going to reflect back on, on my, my predecessors in the past and, and certain things that have happened and in, in, in individual choices that were made. I mean, that's not my dis. My, some of my purview is up there. My purview is to simply represent the district, explain to the district what I stand for, what I believe in. And that's what I try to articulate with the committee. Now, I am a family man. Um, my wife is fantastic. My children are great. Um, I, I love what I do. I'm a lawyer in Clayton um, full time. And so this gave me an opportunity to to simply, you know, participate in government and instead of just watching the TV and getting frustrated. And, uh, you know, I, I like what I'm learning. I like participating and I like, uh, you know, everything that's been going on. It's frustrating at times, don't get me wrong. And it's a lot of work. It's more of a commitment than I think people imagine. It's it's very hard on my family at times. You're gone Monday through Thursday. You, you know, you, they're long days up there. They yeah. start early and late. My wife is now, uh, you know, she takes the kids to and from soccer practice, gymnastic practice, baseball practice, softball practice, basketball practice. I mean, she's always running around, go, taking them to school. And, um, you know, so it's a lot to ask on the family. And I'm grateful to have the support that I do at home. Yeah, and I kind of want to touch on that. I don't think we've really touched on the aspect of what it actually means to be a state rep because or a state senator for that matter. I mean, you get paid $37,000 a year. You have to be gone from your family for long stretches of time. Sometimes you have to be gone from your family even when you're, you're not in session to do political functions. And for somebody who is kind of middle class or maybe in your position to where you're middle, upper class, not supremely wealthy, it may not be something that's very appealing to people, especially when you have to sacrifice professional opportunities to do this. I, I kind of heard you say that from, from your last response that, that might have happened to you. Do you have any kind of advice to some people who may be similar to your situation, thinking about running for a state legislative seat, but maybe leery because of the time commitment and professional sacrifice it may entail? You know, I, I think there's a sacrifice, but there's also a gain. I think if you're going to do this, you have to have a commitment to public service. And I, and I believe all 163 of us that are state reps up at the Capitol do have that commitment. The dedication is there. Um, we work together. We're all in this together, regardless of the party. Um, our goal is to move Missouri forward. And, and so, I mean, I think you have to be dedicated. I think this is not a part-time job is what they advertise it to be. And, and there are a lot of attributes that, you know, benefits you get to a degree because you do get a vote. You get to hit green or red. Um, Mm -hmm. and I view as a privilege Mm -hmm. and I'm grateful to have it. So um, just to make sure, since you came into office in 2016, there's a quirk in the term limit laws. How many more years can you run, hypothetically, in the House until well, you're termed out? Uh, hypothetically speaking, or actually the, pursuant to the Missouri State Constitution, and I believe that that was passed back in like 92, mm-hmm. somewhere around there. 
You can serve uh, 16 years total in the House and the Senate, mm-hmm. but you cannot serve more than eight in either body. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are two statewide offices that have term limits, mm-hmm. and that would be the governor and the treasurer. Yeah, and we're going to, in fact, that's a great segue into our next topic, a topic that you've been pretty invested in. One of the main priorities for the governor is to institute term limits for all statewide officials. Right now, as you mentioned, it's only governor and treasurer. Um, It's not uh, lieutenant governor, secretary of state, attorney general, or state auditor. Um, I want to know from your perspective, because you have sponsored a bill, a constitutional amendment, moreover, to institute term limits for those offices. Why do you think that's needed? And why do you think that would actually fall within the realm of ethics reform or overhauling ethics? Well, I guess I, I get there's many little perspectives, but uh, I think uh, I don't like carve outs. I, I think what's good for the goose is good for the gander. And, and therefore, um, just two statewide office holders have state term limits, uh, two terms of four years, so eight years, where the rest of, the rest of the office holders can stay on in perpetuity. Uh, I, I think that statewide office holders having term limits is a little bit different than the legislative term limits that are there, because many people up until this most recent cycle um, have served in the legislative body in some capacity. Many have been senators, many have been House reps. So they have an understanding of government in a different way. And so they've been in government for a while. And giving them eight years is, I would think, a time um, to, to get something done. I think we've seen in the past that, that many holding certain offices kind of sit around and wait for that opportunity to come and run for governor or run for another office um, and kind of bide their time. I don't know if I want that as a citizen. I want my, my people that are representing me up there working hard for the duration that they've been given up there, knowing that the, the sun will set and they have to have an impact while they're there. I certainly feel that pressure. I have eight years in the House. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's certainly a privilege, but I better do what I want to get done in eight years. And, you know, there's that learning curve. Now, for me, I came in on a special. So it's a little bit of a different circumstance because the Constitution says if you come in after the halfway point mm-hmm. of a term, that then does not count toward the total eight years. So that means you can hypothetically serve nine years. Yeah, I get, yes, I get to serve nine if, if, if it works out that way. Yes. Um, and the Senate, if you come in, you know, a little bit halfway through, the Senate serves four years, House Rep serves two. Yes, yeah. So if you come in a little bit halfway beyond the, the other term, in, in theory, you could almost serve 10 years. Yeah, in Senate. fact, Senator uh, Jake Hummel is in that exact circumstance where if he gets reelected two more times, he could serve for 10 years. Um, and, and likewise, if you come in after the fact, uh, you know, not quite before that, you actually get shortened. Um, you're going to see that down with Mike Parsons' district, uh, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think uh, Sandy Crawford, state rep, is yes. running in that seat. And, you know, assuming she wins, I think she might get cut out of a year. So it works both ways. Mm-hmm. But I, uh, HDR 35 is my constitutional amendment that I'm proposing. I don't know if it's going to get off the ground this year. There are some technicalities that we're looking at, some constitutional provisions regarding um, subject matter and how you would amend the Constitution, whether you can try to work on two things at one time or, or if those would have to be broken up. And where I'm speaking here is the HDR 35 proposes term limits on all statewide office holders. Mm-hmm. But then it also goes in, and, and I'm happy to talk about this. Yes. And this is speaking from experience and talking to others. And as well as if you wish to bring in some ethics, we could talk some about that. But this would change 
the terms of how you would serve in the House and the Senate. It does not extend the term limits of the House and the Senate. It keeps term limits of the House and the Senate at, at 16 years. Mm-hmm. But instead of saying you have to do eight and eight, it allows you to do 12 in either body mm-hmm. with no more than 16 years. Mm-hmm. So you could serve 12 in one body and then go to the other body. for. So like, for example, if you serve for 12 years in the House, you could then run for the Senate and serve one term there. Or if you serve three terms in the Senate, you could serve two terms in the House. Correct. Um, no more than 16 years. Yes. And I think you would see more of the former, more service of 12 years in the House, and then maybe the four in the Senate. But let's be honest, there's only 34 senators. Mm-hmm. There's 163 House reps. And and let's, let's also state that I think the two bodies operate a little bit differently. And mm-hmm. I think we're seeing that this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, I love the House. I love the camaraderie, the teamwork that is necessary, the, the communication between all sides of the aisle, both sides of the aisle that we have to work with to get things done. The Senate's a little bit different. You know, some say they're their own island nations, and they somehow act like that sometimes, too. Not everyone wants to be a senator. Mm-hmm. There's only 34 of them. But what you do see with the term limits now, perhaps, is that many House reps after eight years are all lining up to run for Senate. And it creates a lot of predictability. And I think you also see people that, well, I only get eight years in the House, and after their sixth year, they might, they might have otherwise called it quits, but they feel like you know, maybe they're obligated to serve that extra two years. The party, you've, you've been there, you've learned the ropes a little bit. It's just one more term. By allowing someone to do 12 years, the, the House will gain more historical perspective in its body. Now, I don't know what percent might serve 12 years, uh, and certainly not everybody. But what we have now, and there are accusations that, you know, lobbyists have a greater influence on our body with term limits as they are now. Mm-hmm. And this, if that were true, would help cut back on that. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not saying it's true. I think as a rep, you have, an in, you have the obligation to learn both sides of the stories, to educate yourself before you vote and not be swayed independently mm-hmm. um, by one particular group or mm-hmm. lobbying element. Mm-hmm. But it is true that the lobbyists have been around a lot longer than I have. Mm-hmm. And they've seen a lot of these bills that have been proposed before. Mm-hmm. Uh, year in, year out, certain bills seemingly get filed all the time. Mm-hmm. The lobbyists have been around and they, they've seen that. Allowing 12 years in the House or 12 years in the Senate, I think, might alleviate that. But that's up to the voters to decide, too. These are constitutional amendments which require voter approval. Is the reason it's not getting off the ground because of the uneasiness on the legislative aspect of of allowing somebody to serve more than eight years in one of the chambers? Or is it more of like the technical challenge of of doing a constitutional amendment that that changes two different sections of the Constitution? I would say it's more of the latter, the technical or the form, uh, the latter. The technical component of the HDR 35 really needs to be looked at, as well as the everything we ran on. We did run on ethics reform this year. We ran on tort reform. We ran on labor reform. That was a big element of of what was in this last election cycle. And there's only so much that really can be done. And we've delivered on a substantial component of what we've talked about and what we were running on. If this is ethics reform, this is not like the gift ban that we passed in the House. This is a little bit of a tweak to a system that has been working, I would contend, pretty well. Mm -hmm. And it's up to the voters to decide. This is a bigger issue, and it might be a better issue actually for us to decide in 2018 rather than 2017. Probably uh, more, it makes more logical sense because when you put stuff on the ballot, it may make more sense to debate it sooner to when the people are going to vote on it than a year plus in the future. Going to the broader issue of ethics, 
Uh, the governor, Eric Greitens, made very clear that he wanted a lobbyist gift ban, that he wanted to extend the quote-unquote revolving door before lawmakers could become lobbyists, and he wanted a bill like yours. Um, as you kind of mentioned, the House passed a lobbyist gift restriction bill pretty early in the session. It was the first bill. It was the first bill, but it's run into a lot of opposition in the Senate. Um, I don't really think there's been much movement on extending the revolving door. Um, what's kind of your perspective on on the state of play on that on that on those realm of issues? Um, is, is there a frustration among the House that the lobbyist gift restriction bill isn't really making it through the Senate right now? I don't know if frustration is the term on that singular bill. And we passed it in the House. We let the public know where we stand. I've, I haven't accepted a lobbyist gift in my term in the House, but that's, that's just my choice. Mm-hmm. Um, we passed it. The people know where the House stands. The Senate's doing its own thing, as it's doing its own thing on many subjects. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we, I can't speak for the Senate. It's, mm-hmm. it's frustrating sometimes, day in, day out, mm-hmm. when we're working and they're gaveling out. Yeah, and I want to touch on this uh, part because there have been a couple of articles saying the Senate doesn't want to pass a lobbyist gift ban because they're upset about the governor's use of a 501c4 to do political activity. Now, my rejoinder to that is they were against a lobbyist gift ban the previous year before the governor was in office, and there are legitimate philosophical reasons to be against that and practical reasons to be against that. But I, I also suspect that since a lot of senators take a lot of lobbyist meals, entertainment, and travel, that could be another reason for their opposition. But I do want to touch on that rationale because I do wonder, if we're talking about ethics, why something like revealing contributions to 501c4s isn't part of that discussion. The, the Speaker of the House, Todd Richardson, sponsored a bill as such in 2012 and 2013. It seems like it's an issue that actually a lot of Republicans agree with. Why hasn't that been getting more traction in the House or the Senate? Well, uh, speculation, again, on would be on my part. But, you know, I, I run on transparency. I like transparency. I actually argue there's, there's two ways to look at this. Mm-hmm. You know, Governor Greitens has raised his money as he has. And, I mean, he's done very well at it. Now, uh, it'd be nice to know nec- where, where everything is coming from. I disclose where everything is coming from. But when you have a gift man, too, no, you're not going to get everything disclosed. Mm-hmm. Um, those that do accept gifts, uh, I contend it's a good thing. Because not that they're necessarily accepting gifts per se, but they have to disclose on their MEC reports. I have to disclose where where donations are made, how my committee spends money, if I'm accepting gifts. You see who's accepting the big ticket items. No, I'm, I'm not saying you're getting junkets to to a far off city. I'm just saying the twenty dollar hamburger here right. and there. And I think it's, I think people are maybe a little bit too idealistic, or I don't know, to think that. We're up there. Mm-hmm. It's hard to find time. Mm-hmm. And to, I will say that a, a, a free burger is not going to weigh any influence on how I vote. Yeah. And I, I've actually studied this issue going to the lobbyist gift part for a long time. And I think the issue is not necessarily the meal, but it's actually the fact that lobbyists are getting the time with the legislator one on one to influence them. And even if you are in a situation where you're paying for the meal, 
that influence is still happening. And frankly, it's a constitutional protected influence. I mean, people are allowed to lobby their legislators on behalf of people. And that's not going to change whether there's a gift ban or not. No, nor should it. And I like to hear from my constituents, whether I agree with them or, or they agree with me. I, mean, I like to hear different perspectives. Mm-hmm. I have constituents come up every week and, and have I make appointments. I make myself avail myself to them. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not having breakfast or lunch and they come into my office and I sit down and, and hear what they have to say. We'll debate stuff or, or argue politely over mm-hmm. some issues. And mm-hmm. I try to explain how, how I'm looking at it, and I like to hear how they're looking at it. Mm-hmm. And it's 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 good to get new ideas and fresh fresh thoughts. But going back to my other question, would you support legislation that would require politically active nonprofits to reveal their donors? I would support transparency. Mm-hmm. Yes. So is that something you think could be brought up next year or, or this year before the end of session? I don't see how it gets brought up this year. Yeah, uh, it's pretty but, late in the yeah, process, yeah. to be uh, fair. And, you know, I mean— I think the Republican Party has always advocated for transparency. Yes. Um, and we passed that in the House. And we're going to continue to work towards that from my guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we're not hiding behind anything here. And I just, I just mentioned this because when I wrote about then-Representative Richardson's bill in 2012, I mentioned that back in 2008 when campaign donation limits were taken off, the reason they were taken off from Republicans' point of view and some Democrats, like former Attorney General Chris Coster, who voted for it, was a limitless system allows for more transparency. And by using these 501c4s, you are basically chafing against that principle that you can you should be able to take as much money as you want, but you got to disclose it. And I think that that's where some of the angst in the Senate is coming from with the governor right now. And I wouldn't be surprised if some House members are also a little perturbed of that activity, too. Now, to be fair to the governor and other people, I have also heard the argument that there is sometimes a constitutional and philosophical argument that somebody may want to express their speech in an anonymous way. I've heard that from some conservative people like uh, Greg Keller and Carl Bearden. So I want to just put that out there to make sure that that perspective is there, too. And I'm sure you hear that pers- that's perspective all the time as a legislator. Well, I, I certainly respect people's desire to not necessarily have their flag flown, if they will, to disclose, you know, they're not the politician here. I'm the politician. Right. It's I'm, tr- I'm here to avail myself to, to constituents and the people of Missouri. But I also believe in transparency. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I do like to know. Um, I think my constituents probably do want to know who's donating money to me. And if, if I'm getting large checks from corporations or particular individuals, I think it is important. Yeah. I think my biggest donor has been $5,000, $2,500. i am not accepting big checks. And not you can't, you can't, you can't anymore. Offered big checks. Yeah, you, you're, but, yes. you, you're, you're part of the Amendment 2 era where unless you want to set up a elaborate super PAC, the most you can – get personally is $2,600. So that's certainly true now. And, you know, that's going to face, it's going to put many challenges on, on everybody, but Mm -hmm. it treats everybody equally. We voted in the house to, to ban gifts. And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, that was representative Alferman's bill. That was the first bill brought up in, and that's where we stood. That's where we stood last year. And we did try to curb the lobbying element where you can't just jump out and become a lobbyist immediately too. So we discussed that last year. So I don't know how often that needs to be rekindled year in and year out. We passed it last year. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying it couldn't be augmented, but we do have, we do have the people's time on our hands and we have to allocate that prudently. We discussed that last year and it went through and that was signed off on. So Mm -hmm. there is a ban on lobbying immediately out of the gate. Now we can always have that 
debate, I guess, at a later time to find out how long that ban should be, but that's a little bit subjective. There is a ban in Missouri. You cannot lobby immediately upon leading, leaving the legislature. Well, let's turn to a couple of other issues. Um, I know that you're not on the budget committee, but the budget has been on top of mind for, I think, every legislator. Um, right now, as, as we're taping this, we're taping this on a, April 28th, 2017. The budget is in conference right now. I, I, I would assume, although I'm not going to predict, that the legislature will be able to pass something by May 5th, which is next Friday. But it's been a really challenging budget year, probably more so than than usual. Um, what's just somebody who's kind of you're, you're part of the process, but you're not like intricately part of the process. What's been your observation about how the legislature has dealt with the budget this year? Because this is something that affects Missourians in a very direct way when it comes to health care, when it comes to public safety education and and everything in between it does and it's not it's not a small budget it's 27 billion 28 billion somewhere around there so you know my observation from last year to this is 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 this last year our governor had been in office for a while he'd been used to proposing a budget we have a new governor this year new to office entirely a newcomer and that's in part what i think the public liked about that so, I mean, it took a little bit of time maybe to, to prepare the proposed budget. So we got the budget a little bit later. Now, I'm not on budget, so it didn't directly impact my committees that I'm on. But the House committees, uh, the budget committee got that budget a little bit later. So it took a little bit longer than with our hearings to prepare a budget, and we sent it over to the Senate. Now, the Senate, I, I believe, this week got it done. At least now we're in committee. I'm optimistic. I think we're going to get it done. Um, we have the one constitutional obligation we have in the state of Missouri is to pass the budget. And my observation is, and this goes with uh, Representative Fitzpatrick and uh, Representative Richardson, the goal of the House was to fully fund the foundation formula and to fully fund education in that capacity. And we've done that with, with, this, with the House's proposed budget. And I believe the Senate did that as well. They did, yes. So, I mean, when we're delivering important elements to Missourians, to my, in my mind, education is a very important element. And if we can afford to do that, and we're not, we don't have, you know, globs of money laying around out there, we have to prudently manage the budget. But that was a priority this year, and we accomplished that. I think that one of the things that's going to be talked about in conferences, the House fully funded the education formula by cutting other things and, and making changes in the budget. From what I've read, the Senate fully funded the education formula, but didn't really make a lot of changes to pay for that change, it, which leaves, from some House per people's perspective, like Jay Barnes of Jefferson City, the Senate budget is not balanced right now. The House budget is, and there's going to have to be some give and take to make sure that uncomfortable thing, which is fully funding the education formula, is, is paid for. Is that kind of what your perception of this situation is as well? I was not sitting firsthand at the table with the Senate when they were going through the budget. Mm -hmm. Now, how they're funding the formula is different than the House chose to do it. Mm -hmm. The House, in my mind, has been prudent. I can't comment on how the Senate has handled that. Mm -hmm. But I do believe through the conference committee um, th that will work out. Yeah. And, you know, we're, I think that the thing that people have talked about, especially from the Democratic perspective, is they, they saw the, the drop in corporate taxes – um, I don't know if that's the entire reason why the budget is is kind of troublesome this year. I think that there are other factors as well. The rising cost of Medicaid, um, lesser than expected revenue um, 
in the previous budget. But is this an opportunity to possibly look at some of the corporate tax cuts or tax changes that were made in previous sessions and maybe revisit them so something like this doesn't happen again? When I say something like this, a huge drop in corporate taxes from year to year. You know, I know there was something that came through a couple of years ago that, that did affect the how much money that the, the, the corporations were writing off. And yes. I'm not very well versed in that. Mm. And it has been brought up that maybe that could be looked at again. I, I think everything should be on the table when it comes to funding the priorities that we have in Missouri. But, you know, some things can't, um, and, and that would include our obligations. Our spending for social services is growing. It's the one thing that seemingly is growing. And, and I don't know, I'm not going to say out of control, but it is consistently getting bigger and bigger. The one thing that we can't seemingly always guarantee either is the amount of receipts that we the state of Missouri is bringing in. So if our receipts are not growing at the same rate our promises that past administrations made for social spending, we are in that problem. So I think we have to tighten our budget. I, I think we have to tighten our belt on what we're promising people to. Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore, uh, that's why this budget process is so difficult. Now, I want to talk about a couple of issues that may come down in the pike in the last two weeks of session. You are an attorney, so I think that you probably follow the the couple of bills that are dealing with either the Missouri Merchandising Practices Act, I'm not sure if I got that title correct, or the Missouri Human Rights Act. Now, both of those bills have engendered, I think, what I would say a lot of pushback from a lot of different interest groups. Um, but I think that you see that pushback because there's a clearer path to get those to the governor and get those signed into law. As somebody who is a lawyer and who I'm sure follows these types of issues pretty closely, in the realm of of restrictions on lawsuits or changes of the way those two particular uh, existing Missouri laws are done, what do you kind of foresee in the last couple weeks of session of whether they make it through uh, both the House and the Senate? Okay, just to clarify, the Missouri Merchandising Practices Act, I believe that's Senate Bill 5. Yes, it is. Um, I haven't heard of anything discussing that bill as sort of uh, a priority. I don't even know if it's come to the floor yet. I I don't think, yeah, I mean, I I don't know if it's coming. It's a Senate bill. Mm -hmm. It hasn't come out of the Senate. Mm -hmm. Therefore, it hasn't come to a House committee as far as I'm aware. Yeah. Therefore... The likelihood of that bill getting anywhere this year is is very tight. Probably very, very probably small. low yeah. at this point. But but the other bill I mentioned is in the House right now, and if you pass it's it, it's on the calendar. If if you pass it, I think it goes to the governor, and that has really stoked a lot of controversy. And there are even some Republicans, like the aforementioned Jay Barnes, who do not like this bill. Um, what are what's kind of your thought process going into this, given that there may be some Republicans who vote against this, and it may be a pretty close vote which is unusual in a Republican chamber with 117 people. Oh, there, there's there's two components to this bill, and yeah. I think the bill that you're speaking of is Senate Bill 43. Yes. Um, you know, Senate Bill 43 has, it's in a, it's called the Employment Discrimination Bill, and I think there's good parts to the bill. There's there's parts that I think certainly debate need debate needs to be had on the floor. And there's also a whistleblower component. So there's a little bit, there's kind of two components to the bill, employment discrimination and whistle whistleblower. The whistleblower is an entity unto its own. There were three bills that were presented in the House that 
were, were different than this bill, but still tackled some of the same issues. The nuances of those bills, though, were different than Senate Bill 43, to the best of my knowledge. Um, Representative Joe Don McGaw had one of them. Uh, Assistant Floor Majority Leader Kevin Austin had one, and I had the other one, mm-hmm. 676. Mm-hmm. Um, the bill that I had w- was different, and th- w- it turned out, for whatever reason, the Senate bill was the, the bill that made it over. That bill's different than my bill. Um, I had other issues that I wanted to talk about uh, in my bill, and I think some of those issues are going to be brought up on the floor. Mm -hmm. But I do believe that talking to the caucus as a whole, uh, I think there's a movement out there and an understanding that that we need to change the standard for filing um, employment discrimination cases, and that comes from contributing which is where the standard is now, to, to motivating. Mm-hmm. Contributing factor is a very slippery slope. And with that contributing factor, it's very difficult to have summary judgments. Every case goes to trial. And the cost of litigation has been overwhelmingly going up. Mm-hmm. If we were to move to a motivating factor, it's a little bit of a higher standard. I believe that what many of the bills tried to do, and, and I'm not going to say Senate Bill 43 doesn't, I think it does in many ways, it tries to move to more of a federal standard, mm-hmm. the motivating standard. It's a little bit of a higher standard. Now, isn't 43, doesn't it say the motivating factor as opposed to a motivating factor? Yes. And that's where the controversy I lies, does. I well, believe. part of the controversy. Yes. You know, I'm not so certain the and uh make that much of a difference uh-huh. if you look at case law. However, there is an issue regarding venue. Mm-hmm. And this is a sensitive issue. Uh, in Missouri, with contributing um, and uh, the, the laws for individual liability, where Senate Bill 43 would strip individual liability altogether out, i.e., the alleged perpetrator w- could not be a named defendant in the case. Now, I'm not saying that the defendant's name wouldn't be in the body of the case as a whole. It just the defendant's, uh, the perpetrator's name would not be in the style of the case. Mm-hmm. Thereby, they would not be a direct defendant. Mm-hmm. That changes venue. As such, you won't name an individual, and therefore you may not get state venue. Mm-hmm. And what has been explained to me, and, and this is not my expertise of employment law, right? that many cases contain the, the name of the employer and then contain the name of the alleged perpetrator or the discriminator. Mm-hmm. And then after 365 days, when a case can no longer be removed to federal court, or right before trial, that individual is dismissed from the case. Mm-hmm. So these companies are left defending cases on a very low standard in state court, a little bit of a venue matter, shopping, if you will, whereas Senate Bill 43 would allow that not to happen. It would preclude an individual, not all cases, but many cases would really, really end up in federal court. Mm-hmm. Now, that would occur if there's diversity of citizenship, mm-hmm. i.e., you have you know, an out-of-state plaintiff or defendant, and you have an amount in controversy that exceeds $75,000. Mm-hmm. That would not apply to those individuals that have Missouri corporations and where the, the acts were to allegedly to have occurred in, in the state of Missouri. You, you would still have state court. So there's, there really is a lot to be discussed. This is a debate on the floor that will last hours. Um, my last calculation here on amendments that were filed um, in Senate Bill 43, and these are House amendments. This is, this is the way 
Right, there are almost 40 amendments. Yeah, and my, under, a lot of, my, my understanding is if one of those amendments passes, this bill is dead pretty much because if it goes back to the Senate, it will be filibustered into oblivion. Is that your understanding too? Well, you know, I, I would like to think that the bodies can make a bill better mm-hmm. and that both bodies would be willing to take a bill back from the other side and, 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 and debate it further. And, you know, we are a, a, the legislators meant for debate. The mm-hmm. House is meant to debate stuff. The Senate's meant to debate stuff. And they're allegedly the, the higher or the, the group that debates more thoroughly, if you will. Yeah, the, the, debate, the more deliberate body. Yeah, the more deliberate body. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they're deliberative or obstructionist lately, but um, either way, it's the rumor is is that the bill is supposed to not not be muddled with too much. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess your guess is as good as mine. If it if if an amendment is added, um, you know, there's a lot of what ifs on this bill, it, and this bill's been laying around for a little while. So I, I do want to touch on the a versus the for a second, and I want to just clarify to our listeners, and I've said this many times. I'm not an attorney, so I'm no, I'm not really that well versed in employment discrimination law. But I think what has been told to me, and just from my layman's view of language, is if you change it from contributing to the motivating, you could have situations where somebody is blatantly racist or sexist towards somebody. But if they claim that is not the motivating factor toward the reason they were fired, they fired somebody, then they could potentially be off the hook of paying potentially legitimate damages to the person that they fired. That's been the Democratic and, to some extent, the Republican argumentation against A versus the. I'm sure you've heard that argument, too. Do you fear that that might, be, might happen if this bill is passed? Well, I, I think all of us out there want to prevent any discriminatory act. I certainly do. This was, you hear of some heinous actions taken by employers, and there should be some significant repercussions. And I would like to think there would be good repercussions on individuals as well. Um, that is a debate that needs to be had, and, mm-hmm. and maybe there needs to be some some changes down the road as well as to how that could better be handled while also addressing the venue issues. Mm-hmm. Because I think it's disingenuous to say individuals are held accountable. We want to keep them held accountable, but, but then we dis, we dismiss them. Mm-hmm. Uh, what you pointed out is a little subjective. I think it's going to be up to the courts. In many ways, it, this whole issue has arisen because of an interpretation of because of. Mm-hmm. The interpretation of how Missouri courts have handled because of, and then the interpretation of how federal courts have handled because of, and mm-hmm. that went from contributing to motivating. Mm-hmm. So I would like to think if, if the, the hypothetical you just spoke of would, have, would handle itself. I don't think you can say it's the motivating factor if you said some distinctive racist actions were taken. No, that's unacceptable to me. It would be unacceptable if I was sitting in that jury of 12. Mm-hmm. Um, I would think you would have a motivating and the motivating factor. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's a sensitive topic. We certainly don't, uh, don't want to let those, those cases slip through the cracks because of, of a change. But at the same time, we don't want to allow frivolous cases uh, to be brought up time and again that in many ways diminish those horrendous cases where attention really needs to be brought down on those that are doing the the bad acts. Mm -hmm. What other bills do you think are going to come up in the last two weeks of session do you think are going to be hotly debated? I know the one that you have in your hand, Senate Bill 43, as you mentioned, is going to get hours and hours of debate. 
But I know that's not the only one. There's PDMP, the Prescription Drug Monitoring Program, that needs to get hashed out in a conference committee. There's the real ID issue where people may have to buy passports to get on planes. What what are some of the other issues in the last couple of weeks of session that you're going to be heavily engaged in looking out for? Well, you've named two, uh, PDMP. Again, this is the second year for me out there. And the first year, PDMP, in my mind, wasn't as good as it is this year. It's been changed. And it, a lot of good stuff has been added to, added to Representative Rader's bill. I w- the, the Senate loaded it up with amendments, and it came back, and I think it's in committee. So hopefully they're able to work something out in committee where, where both, both sides um, can agree on. And then re- real ID for me is an important topic. You know, I don't like the idea that government is collecting all this data. Uh, I think it's kind of sinister, much like with PDMP. But I also am not naive to think that the government doesn't already have that data. You know, the government I know already has my fingerprints. I've already given them to the government because I serve in office. But not everybody has. And so we should be sensitive to that. But, you know, when you're going to – we're giving people an option of whether they want to have a real ID or a Missouri ID, simple Missouri ID. That law, I believe, takes effect in January. I don't think it's January the 1st. Someone said January the 22nd. But I can tell you, I'd be rather frustrated when I'm going to go visit Grandma over the holidays. And when I try to get back on an airplane, and I'm in one of the 50 states, and we all have stars on the flag, and they're telling me I can't come back home. And I think this, this is in the Senate's hands. Um, they can fix it. They can they can they can send this bill to the governor, and then my my constituents aren't going to have this problem. Yeah, because I think that the thing that people need to realize is, okay, it's hypothetical that the government could give Missouri another waiver, and the scenarios that people are putting forward about them having to get passports may not happen. But if that does happen, and I'm sure you know this because you probably have a passport, getting a passport is not an easy process. You need to send the government your birth certificate. That's a lot of money. And you have to spend well over $100 to do it. That is not something that every Missourian has the ability or desire to do, especially if they already have a driver's license that they got for like 20 bucks or 30 bucks. When you want to cross state lines. Yeah, exactly. Simply to visit a family member. Yeah. I mean, no, I, you know, there's, I believe a, there are five states that haven't adopted this. And I, you have to ask yourself, what hill do you want to die on? Um, to prevent, you know, egregious federal government overreach. And I, I do not like federal government overreach, and I, and I often would contend that that's where the federal government seems to be going. It's just that I believe the federal government always already has this data the moment you, you, you have a passport or you, you get a driver's license. We're giving individuals choices. You do not have to get a real ID if you don't want to. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, we're, you know, those are two bills that, that certainly will come up. Um, and you know, I, I, there's a lot of, I mean, I'm looking through the calendar right here. There's, we, and there, you know, there's, there's this tort reform here. Um, I believe there's more, uh, labor reform to come up as well. That's sitting over on the Senate side. You know, I think we're all waiting to see if the Senate's going to, going to get to work. Mm-hmm. My, my last question is a question I've been asking all the, the guests we have on the show or in the legislature. What's your impressions of the new governor? Because, the reason I keep asking that question is because there are so many Republicans in the legislature now and you have a Republican governor, the opportunity for both entities to accomplish a lot of policy change is immense, probably more immense than any other point in Missouri history for the Republican Party. And 
I've gotten the sense that, you know, there are a lot of House members that are happy with the governor. There are even some Senate members on the Republican side who are happy with the governor. Obviously, a lot of senators who are kind of fed up with the governor right now on a lot of issues. What's kind of been your impression so far, given the opportunity Republicans have to do a lot with that setup? I think just because you have an opportunity or the because it could be easy doesn't necessarily it shouldn't go through the normal process of good debate. And I think the, many of the issues that the Republican Party ran on, uh, labor reform, tort reform, some tax reform, um, we've tackled a lot of those issues. We fully funded the foundation formula. Now, I mean, how, how, you know, we can continue to go further, but we still need to have debate. We just don't, shouldn't wantonly pass laws. And I think the public should expect that. Mm-hmm. So the governor, to me, has been friendly. Uh, I think he's been friendly to everybody. Uh, it was over um, meeting with him on Wednesday of last week, and he has invited the whole house up, I believe, on May the 8th for a picnic. Um, you know, he's, he's trying. He's new. Uh, I'm new. We're all learning a little bit as we do not have a life in politics yet. And uh, we're here to serve. I, I respect his willingness to um, be a public servant. It's Being governor has got to be an arduous task. It's more of a commitment than, well, it's a full-time job. But, mm-hmm. you know, I respect anyone on either side of the aisle that's willing to commit themselves to public service. And I've, you know, enjoyed getting to know him and, and his wife and his family. And uh, I continue to, to look forward to, to working with him. To end the show on kind of a humorous note, do you think that some of the differences between some Republican senators and the governor could be overcome if they ran in an obstacle course race against each other and the winner gets to win the argument? Well, I think the governor would probably be the hands-on favorite to win the argument. I believe he posted something on Facebook the other day running an obstacle course. And I'm a little bit older than him as well. But, uh, you know, I, I think uh, engaging the House and the Senate in in friendly sparring, if you will, from time to time is, is a way to, to get to know each other. And we are a lot closer down there, both sides of the aisle, than what sometimes we're shown to be here perhaps when we're back in our urban districts or our rural districts. Uh, I try to work with both sides of the aisle. Um, I'm trying to work on some municipal reform with House Bill 380 to touch on credit for time served, if you will, or uh, consolidation of some municipal court dockets. Um, so, And, and I'm, I'm reaching across the aisle to do that. And that's what I think is important up there. And I hope to see that type of behavior continue. Well, I think that maybe the legislators might be given a a fairer advantage if the governor runs that obstacle course in his traditional uh, blue jeans, suit jacket, and Oxford shirt, and they get to wear athletic attire. On that note, we want to just thank you, and by we, I mean me and Joe from afar, from coming on our show. We, We will invite you back pretty soon to talk about more issues. For all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. How can people follow you either on Twitter, Facebook, World Wide Web, any place you want your constituents to get in touch with you? Well, I have a Twitter handle there. I could get better at it. I'm working on that. I also have a Facebook page. And you can always reach me at the Missouri House. Anyway, um, you know, we return phone calls, respond to emails. We try to be attentive. Um, you know, these last couple of weeks are going to keep us quite busy. But I'm, I'm happy to, to hear what everybody has to say. And I thank, thank you for having me on, Jason. Um, sorry Joe wasn't here, but I hope she's enjoying her vacation. And um, look forward to reaching, uh, touching base with you whenever we can. I have not talked to Joe, but I imagine she's having a great time right now. And we'll be back next time. Until then, so long.